we are beginning this year uh, by conducting a spiritual audit. Started this several weeks ago in this message series. If you own a business, you probably do what we do um, every year here at Seabreeze. We hire an uh, independent CPA firm to conduct a review, sometimes an audit, of our finances. And the reason that any business does this is because it's not good enough to simply trust your own bookkeeping and your own assessment about the finances. You, you really want to make sure you're dealing with the facts. You want independent verification of the facts. Now, the purpose of a spiritual audit is similar to a financial audit. With both, the goal is to make sure that you're dealing with the facts, the truth. Now, with a spiritual audit, of course, the focus is on our relationship with God, not our finances. But in today's finding, we discover that the two areas, spiritual and financial, are not as separate as we might think they are. The spiritual CPA that I've selected for this audit is the prophet Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. And it's a an interesting book in that it contains not only God's statements, but the responses of the people at the time. It's a back-and-forth exchange between God and Israel. And God declares what is true about them. This is the formula, how it goes. God makes a statement, a finding, and they deny it. They ask a question that is full of denial. And then God opens up the books and points to the evidence of what they've said and what they've done behind what he has claimed. Now, this spiritual audit was conducted 2,400 years ago, but not much has changed in our hearts, and so the conclusions still ring true for us today. Now, before the audit begins, God declares his love for them and for us, and I need to begin each one of these by reminding us of this. It's very reassuring that God has decided to love us because the findings of this audit for them and for us are not favorable. So God makes it clear that that's not what's at stake in this audit, his love for them. That's already been settled. So once that fact is in place, then God proceeds to examine the, the two areas that every CPA examines when they conduct a financial audit, and that is errors and theft. That's what they're looking for. Have there errors been made in the way the books have been kept, or are the, do the numbers reflect what is really true of the particular business? And the second area is theft. Are there any signs that someone's been taking money from the business? Now, the Malachi audit reveals problems in both areas. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at the evidence of how they've been er committing errors in their bookkeeping. They really have been cooking the spiritual books. Now, cooking the books is a, a modern financial term that's used for the practice of making the finances look better than they really are. And we tend to do this morally. We tend to present ourselves as doing better than we really are. And so they, at this time, they've been appearing very spiritual, because they were doing spiritual rituals and they were expressing tremendous emotion towards God. But God points beyond the presentation of their spirituality to the facts. He points to the evidence that they're really not loving him or each other very well and that he's not fooled by their moral cooking of the books. Now, in this finding, this next finding, God uncovers theft. Here's what he says in Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Now, this is the point at which the financial and the spiritual audits merge together and overlap. And we tend to think of these two, spiritual and financial, as completely separate worlds. But the truth is that whenever we handle money, it's always a very spiritual experience for us. Now, the Malachi audit points to the three ways that money impacts us 
at a soul level. It's important for us to understand these. We're going to work through these this morning. First of all, money turns our hearts. Money has the power to turn our hearts. Turns out that theft, robbing God, was not God's top concern. The top concern that God has in this section of the audit is how their hearts had turned away from him. That's God's top concern. So in the two verses before the one I just read, we read this, Malachi 3, 6 through 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? So it begins by God kind of repeating his love for them. He says, I don't change. That's why you haven't been destroyed. What God is saying is the only reason they're still alive is because of the fact that God's love for them doesn't change, regardless of what they do. But while God's love for us doesn't change, our love for him is very fickle. It does change. And that's what had happened to them. They had made a habit of turning away from God and what he had said. Now, we, of course, have continued in that tradition. And this is the only finding in the entire book that they seem to agree with, that they have turned away from him. Rather than a how are we doing what you accuse us of doing question, which has marked every finding up to this point and the ones after this, they don't seem to have a defensive response to this. Their only question is, how are we to return? What they're saying is, God, you're right. We've turned away from you. How do we get back on track? How are we to return? And it's after they ask the question, how are we to return, that God gives them the answer in the verse that I just said. The answer is, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. So here's what's going on. God says, here's my big concern is your heart's turned away from me. And they say, you know what, God, you're right. We agree with you. How do you suggest we return to you? What is the first and the best place, God, for us to to start? Where, Where should we get back on track? And God says, well, you can start by no longer robbing me. That's where you start. Now, that's surprising. What this is saying is the point of return to God is marked by the financial decision to give to God, to give money to God. That's, that's really surprising. That's not at all what we would have expected. That's, again, because we tend to see God and money as two separate worlds, two completely different categories. But God knows the truth, that it's actually both God and money that are always in direct competition for that top place in our heart. That's why this is the turning point. And without a concerted effort on our part, money is always going to win that competition. So they want to turn around, and they ask where, and God says, well, stop robbing me. So if you want to turn your life around, you have to change the one you're following. We tend to think we just have the power to turn our life around, but we have to often unhook ourselves from the thing or the person that we're following, if we really want to make a change, if we really want to turn around. So when it comes to money, we have to demote money and promote God if we're going to turn around. That's what tithes and offerings do. There is no way that anyone would do this 
unless they are absolutely convinced that God, and not money, is their one true Lord, the one boss of their life. And that God, and not money, is their one true Savior, their best hope for the future. You see, money tends to make some of the same promises God makes. And we can see money. So Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You're going to have to choose one. Now, we don't get to make that very difficult choice just once. We don't get just to check the box and say, I vote for God, and then it's locked in. No, we, we have to make this choice again and again. That's because we can't turn away from money as easily as we can from God. We can turn away from God and put him out of our mind and have nothing to do with him and move on with our life. But we can't turn away from money because, well, next month the landlord wants money for rent and the grocery stores require money for food and the banks require money for mortgages. And if you want to drive a car and put gas in it, that's going to take money. So you can't just say, you know what, I'm done with money. That's not an option for us. We need money. And so giving is the only practical way for us to keep putting God over money. The challenge is money never stays put, never lingers in the number two spot. So we have to keep demoting it. It just keeps rising up in our hearts. This is why God tells them and us that if, if we really want to turn back to him, we got to get involved in this area. This is where we got to start. Now, it's not because God wants our money. He doesn't need our money. It's because our money wants us. And God wants to free us from its rule. God knows that money is an absolute tyrant. Money will demand your entire life and leave you empty as a shell at the end. God knows this. So he wants to free us from its rule. Now, this power of money to to turn a person around didn't really click for me until I saw it with my own eyes. I would see people struggle just to turn their lives around. And oftentimes it was like watching someone trying to escape quicksand. And they put in all kinds of effort, but they just seemed to be getting deeper and deeper into whatever the challenge was that they were trying to overcome. They just kept getting pulled under. And then I started noticing that whenever a person would start doing this, they would start giving to God, almost always, within a shorter period of time, maybe a few months, I would notice change occur in their life that more change than had occurred in years. Why? Well, as I talked with them, what came to the surface was God had not become real to them until they started giving. This is what they said. I mean, they, of course, believed that he existed, but because we can't see God, it's very easy for our belief in God to kind of linger out here in theory land. You know, we, we have a thought about him, but it's not as real as money is. And so God wasn't as real to them as what they were struggling with. They could see what they were struggling with. They could feel what they were struggling with. But they couldn't see God. They couldn't always feel God. 
There are very few things that are as real to us as money. Money is very real. It touches pretty much every area of life. So it's often only when we start giving to God that he becomes anywhere close to being as real to us as our money is. And when that occurs, well, there's a real turn that takes place. This is why, when asked, okay, God, you're right. We've turned away from you. How how do you suggest we get back on track? How should we return? God points to our wallet and says, start there. Start giving. To which most people say, can I start somewhere else? God says, well, it depends on whether you really want to turn around or not. Start there. The second power that money has is money always points to an owner. Money always points to an owner. Money doesn't just float out there without a name attached to it. You know, if you were taking your seat this morning and you noticed a $20 bill on the seat, what would your first question be? You'd lift it up and say, hey, whose is this? If you're honest, hopefully, you'd say that. I mean, you could just put it in your pocket, but now, again, you're the owner now. But we know that money belongs to somebody. It didn't just float there. So the question you have to ask when God says, will a man rob me, yet you rob me, you have to ask, why is not giving to God called robbing? That seems strange. I mean, if you didn't give me a Christmas gift a couple of months ago, I don't call that theft. You just maybe didn't know me well enough. You weren't close to me. I maybe didn't give you a gift. That's, that's fine. I just call that, oh, you didn't give a gift to me, and I didn't give a gift to you. We don't classify that as theft. So why is not giving to God classified as theft? It's because God is the owner of everything that we have. That's what this implies. Let me explain to you this way. If I, if I loan you my car, it's my car, and I loan it to you, and I say, you can use it for 10 days, but I need it after that, so you need to return my car to me in 10 days. And the 10 days come, and you don't return the car, and I'll call you, and you inform me that you're not returning the car. Okay, well, now it's a theft, Right? Because it's my car. Because you're not giving it back to me. It's the same with God. Everything we have is on loan from God. It is not our money. It has our name on it because it's on loan from him, but it's really his. So when God lends us money and tells us to return $1 and 10, that's what the word tithe means, 10%, to return $1.10, but we don't, well then, that's why it's called robbing. That's why it's stealing. So when we give to God, it's really technically not giving. It's giving back. We just only use that first word, but it's really giving back. What belongs to him and has been unloaned to us from him. That's why it's called robbing. Now, stealing, of course... It's never a good idea. But stealing from God is the worst of all ideas, the worst of all thefts. Now, I don't have a lot of experience when it comes to robbery, with the exception of one week. 
Several years ago, I went on a, a week-long crime spree, actually. It began in a sporting goods store. I, I walked into the store, picked out the item that I needed, and walked straight out the front door without paying for it. It wasn't until I got to my car that I realized what I'd done. I had skipped that all-important step, that one that distinguishes someone from customer and criminal, that, that paying for the merchandise step. I'd, I had stuff on my mind. I'd just forgotten about it. And then I sat in my car, and I put the item in the seat, and I realized, oh, I just walked straight out the door. A sudden wave of horror came over me, and actually I looked back expecting to see someone running out of the front door of that sporting goods store in pursuit. I mean, I, I could see the headlines, local pastor caught shoplifting. <laughs> I mean, I was just, oh, no. But you know what? Nothing happened. No one was coming out the door, and I, I had actually done it. <laughs> and, you know, for my first theft, I was amazed at how easy it was. <laughs> I'd, I'd thought it'd be, you know, a lot harder than that, but, man, it was easy. And I made a mental note at that point that the key to stealing stuff is to be confident. <laughs> but then I came to my senses, and I walked back into the store, and I explained to the clerk what I'd done and paid for the item. Now, the clerk was very surprised. Not that I had done what I'd done, but that I actually come, came back after getting away with it to pay for it. And I was relieved. You'd think I'd learned my lesson. But that was just the beginning of my crime spree. <laughs> I did the same thing at Home Depot two days later. <laughs> Looking back on that week, I realized clearly I had way too much on my mind. I probably shouldn't have even been driving. <laughs> just to be walking in stores and walking out without paying for stuff. But I'll, I'll still, it was several years ago, but I'll still, I'll never forget that sudden surge of guilt in both times when I got in my car and I realized, oh man, I I didn't pay for this. I just stole it. I'll never forget that. So I can only imagine what these people must have felt when they heard these words from God's prophet accusing them of robbing God. I don't think they intended to do that at all. I mean, it's one thing to steal from a sporting goods store in Home Depot, but God? No one sets out in their right mind to rob God. Like with my crime spree, this is almost always unintentional. So how does God respond to being robbed? Well, since they don't really think that it's robbing God, that means they don't really think that God owns everything, what God does then and now is he sets out to convince them and us that he is in fact the owner of everything we have. How does he convince us? With words? Oh, no, when it comes to something as real as money, words will never convince us. It wouldn't convince them. What he did in their situation is he stopped the rain, and he sent parasites to begin to destroy their crops. Malachi 3.9, the very next verse, God describes it this way. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Now, a curse is not God being mad. You know, we use the word curse for swear words and anger, but a curse is not God being mad. A curse is really God withdrawing his blessing. You see, because this whole world is already under a curse, that's the impact of sin. That's why this world is broken. That's why we're broken. That's why things fall apart. 
That's why there's death. Because this world is already under curse. What we don't realize is how much God's hand of protection and blessing is protecting us from. And so we say, God, we don't think you own everything. And God says, all right, well, let me just pull back my hand of blessing and protection just a little bit. And maybe you'll see that I really do own everything. I really am in charge of everything. That's what was happening at this time in Israel. God basically points to their recent farming efforts and asks them, so how's it going? Well, it was going terrible. Why? Aren't you working hard? No, they were working very hard. The problem is, it wasn't raining. Huh. I wonder why. But God is saying here is, could it be that you're robbing the one who sends the rain? Well, that's not smart. In our case, could it be the one that you're robbing the one who's in charge of your payroll, who's in charge of your bank account? Could it be? That's not smart. Now, the word tithe, as I said, that means tenth. And that's, well, that's a lot of money. At whatever level of income you are, that's a lot of money. I have yet to have a single conversation with anyone about this when they first begin to understand what this means and the tithing, where they say, now I know why I always have an extra 10% at the end of the month. I've always wondered why I just can't ever seem to get, you know, I just always have extra. I just always have an extra 10%. No matter what I do, I always get an extra. I know now I'm supposed to give that to God. Now I know why. Well, that's never the case. In almost every case that I know of, definitely for me, it's always been, well, if I'm going to do this, then I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I'm not sure how this is going to get taken care of. I'm going to have to trust God, and I'm going to have to do with less. That's the way it is for all of us. So why would someone do this? The only reason is because they're convinced that God is real. That this is real. This is not just, hey, it's a good idea. That This is real. Let me put it this way. Why pay taxes? Because the IRS is real. Right? I mean, if you don't pay taxes, things can get bad real fast. I've seen this. Not in my own life, but I've, I've had some friends kind of mess with the IRS. And man, the IRS always wins. At least in my experience. So I've decided, note to self, don't mess with the IRS. I mean, don't, don't pay more than you have to, but don't get weird on taxes. It's the same with mortgages. You know, foreclosure, foreclosure is not, it's not a pleasant thing. It's never happened to me, but I don't want it to happen to me. So paying my mortgage, that's a big deal. When it was rent, same thing. It's the same with utilities, water and electricity and gas. Those are really helpful things. So I make sure I pay those bills. You know, things like Netflix and eating out, that's nice. That's not as important. Not essential. So where does giving God a tithe fit into this? Well, what happens if you rob God, if you don't do this? You know what happens? Nothing. Immediately. 
God doesn't garnish wages like the IRS. He won't send a letter with that dreaded IRS logo. <gasps> what have I done? No, he doesn't do that. He will not foreclose on my house like the bank would if I don't pay them. But what happens is in a way, in a time of his choosing, he'll pull back his hand of provision and protection. And life starts to fall apart more than normal. Now, in this case, pests kept eating up the crops, and the fruit, therefore, wouldn't blossom. And this was an agricultural economy. This was devastating. For me, when I was wrestling with this in my 20s, and I spent some time not doing this, for me, it was things like cars breaking down more than normal. I mean, cars break down. But I went through a period of time when I wasn't tithing where I just couldn't keep one on the road for a while. Sales kept drying up for me. Relationships were going south more than normal. Now, I can't prove the link like I could if I messed with the IRS or if I didn't pay my mortgage. I can't prove the link because you never know for sure why either good or bad things happen in life. And that's because there are a number of reasons why good things happen and bad things happen. And this is only one of the reasons. But for me, personally, I've decided that I want to eliminate this one from the list of possible whys. I would rather tithe and live on 90% with God's hand of protection and blessing on that 90% than live on 100% open to the full curse. It just, you know, it just seems smarter to me. But again, that's because I'm convinced that God is real. I've seen this stuff. So if you're not convinced, well, that brings us to number three. Money is the big test. It's the big faith test. God knows this is hard to believe, so he offers us a test to convince us, to help us in this. Here's what we read in Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open, throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now, a little background on testing God. This is one of the things that we love to do. We love to test God. What, what is a test of God? Basically, we say, God, if you do this, and th we write the test. God, if you do this, and this, and this, thereby proving yourself to be real, then I will go ahead and obey you. Now, in the Bible, that's a big no-no. We are told repeatedly, God says, you're not to test the Lord your God. You're not to write up these tests for me to pass. Why? Well, when, when a test is given, who's in the authority? The test giver or the test taker? Test giver. Teacher's the one that's in authority. So whenever we give God a test, we're raising ourselves up above him, and we're saying, God... We want you to jump through these hoops before we're going to be convinced that you're real. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. So we are not to write tests for God to pass. With one exception, this exception. God has given one and only exception to the testing band. We can test him in this. Well, that's not the kind of test we wanted. God says, well, this is it. What God is saying is, if you want to see me show up in your life in a tangible, real way, then start tithing and watch what happens. He says, I'm going to open up the floodgates of heaven. 
That is the only flood that's good. That's a good flood. He's saying, you want visible evidence that I'm real and in control of things? Test me. As I said, this isn't the kind of test we would have ever written. You see, we write one-sided tests, tests that basically say, God, you go first, and then we'll follow. This is a two-sided test. God says, you go first, and then I'll prove myself. It's two-sided because it's not only a test of God, it's also a test of us. And that's why very, very few take this test. Actually, in, a, in the average church in America, only 10% tithe. Very few take this test. But for those who do, it is life-changing. Now, honestly, I used to dread telling people about this, about tithing. You know, talking about money in church, it's always awkward. I mean, talking about money anywhere is awkward. In church, yeah, it's awkward. People get defensive. But I don't dread this anymore because I have seen God act in miraculous ways in people's lives who start doing this. I mean, I've seen people give to God and have him turn around. You know, they start tithing, and they have him turn around in a period of three months. They get a raise that is exactly the amount they started tithing. Now, I haven't seen that often, honestly, and I'm not promising that, but I've seen that. I mean, to the dollar. Freaky, weird stuff. I've seen, as I said, I've seen people who were stuck in the spiritual mud suddenly begin to grow in their faith when they started tithing. In some cases, I've seen long-standing relational conflict. And by that, I mean two decades of conflict in a relationship get resolved in the same year that they started tithing. I don't know for sure that one was linked to the other, but you got to wonder. One time, I saw a spiritual skeptic take this test. He became convinced that God is real and decided to follow. So now, actually, I get excited when I talk about this topic because I, you know what I think? I wonder, how many of you are going to start taking this test? How many will get to see God actually show up? Because for those of you who do, I promise you, you'll never be the same. Now, since the tithe is such a big deal to God, I want to answer just three of the most common questions, follow-up questions that I get. I used to not do this, but I kept getting so many questions. I thought, well, let me just answer these questions. You may have others. We can help you with those. But these three are the most common I get. The first question is, is tithing just an Old Testament thing? You may run across this idea because there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that are no longer in play because Jesus fulfilled a lot of what the Old Testament was about. And because tithing is presented in the Old Testament, the question is, well, maybe it stays in the Old Testament like some other stuff. Now, when I first heard this idea, I was really hoping that was true. That would be great. Let's just leave tithing as an ancient practice. But as I read through the New Testament, you know, I just I couldn't shake the fact that it's there too. One example, in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, of his day, and they are serious tithers. I mean, they're crazy serious tithers. But the problem is they're ignoring some really big things like love, 
and justice. And Jesus calls him out, and this is what he says in Matthew 23, 23 in part. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What he's saying is, you need to do both. You see, they were treating tithing. Sometimes people treat tithing this way. It's almost like paying your electric bill. You'll never hear from the electric company if you keep paying your bill. If you keep tithing, maybe God will just get off your back and you can do whatever you want. That's the way they were treating God. Okay, we're tithing, and now we can treat people awful, and we can not handle justice rightly, and God says, oh, no, 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 no. You need to do both. Tithing is not get me off your back payment. It's giving back to me to put me in the right place in your heart. So you need to do both. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. Next question is, do I tithe off my gross or net income? In other words, before or after taxes. This is the big question. And I love this question because it means, all right, you're thinking about it. If this question hasn't occurred to you, you've not really thought seriously about this yet. It's a great question. And you'll hear people have different answers on this. So it's your call, but I'll tell you what, where I've landed. The most common description of the tithe in the Bible is the term first fruits. And the reason is because in the times of the Bible, it was an agricultural economy, and most of the income was in agriculture. And it's called first fruits because the idea is once you bring the harvest in, the first thing you do with all the fruit is you tithe. It's the first thing right off the top. So I think the tithe comes off the top before anything else. So my understanding is because God is even more powerful than the IRS, we tithe out of the gross, not the net. Last question, where do I give the tithe? God said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was where the resources for the temple were stored. So the tithe goes to the location of God's work on earth. In the Old Testament, it was a temple. Now, since Jesus Christ, it's his church. So this is not philanthropy. Philanthropy is great. The tithe is giving to the place where God's work is centered. Now it's the church, then it was the temple. So that's where the tithe goes. Now, if you're not tithing, I know this is a big step. But if you're robbing God, I think you'd want to know that. Let me put it this way. If, If you see me walking out of a store with merchandise in hand and no receipt in sight, I would consider you a friend if you asked me, have you paid for that? Because I know how you are. If you paid for that, I'd consider you a friend. So I, I'm approaching you as a friend. You know, I, I, would, I would think that when you stand before God and he, you have to give an account for this, I don't want anyone saying, well, the guy at our church never said anything about this. No, no, he did. It's on you now. Now, if you disagree with with all of this, that doesn't bother me at all. I'm just telling you what God said in this. God's a much better convincer than I am. I just want you to know what he says on this. He says, test me in this. So, I'm going to challenge you to do that. Here's my challenge. Let's make it very specific. I challenge you to tithe between now and Easter. That's 10 weeks. 
Can you believe Easter's 10 weeks away? That's 10 weeks. Tithe for just 10 weeks. Then evaluate. Now, let me be clear. God did not promise to bless in any specific way or in any specific timetable. So I cannot promise, and I will not promise, that in 10 weeks your money's going to double or all kinds of amazing things are going to happen. I, I can't promise that. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray that if you do this in the next 10 weeks, that God will show up in a way that you can't miss and bless you. In fact, I'd like to, I'd like to pray for you by name, if, if you're willing. If you're not, that's fine. It's completely fine. I, just, I, I really want to pray for you. So if you want to do this, you can put your name in the comments part, the back of the connection card, and just say tithing challenge. The only thing I will do with that name is pray for you by name. That's all. Nothing else. I'm not going to email you or contact you. Just, I'm just going to pray. So if you want to do this, you want to take this challenge, give me your name and I'll pray for you. If you don't want to give me your name, that's fine. Just take the challenge. Let's pray. Father, we know our own hearts. And I can almost weekly feel money rise in my own heart as, as the thing that is most important to me. So again and again, I need the discipline of giving to you to tell my heart who's boss because my heart will not believe what my head says. It'll believe what my money does. So God, I pray for those in this room. Pray for those that maybe are hearing this for the first time. God, I ask that you would give them clarity in what you want them to do next. For those that have done this and they've figured out a way to not do it anymore, God, I pray you'd help them to get back on track. And then, Father, for those who are deciding to take the challenge, the tithing challenge between now and Easter, God, I pray. You have not promised what you would do, and in what timetable you would do. But God, we just ask that over the next 10 weeks that you in some way would show up and that your hand of blessing would be evident on those who decide to take this test. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.